0: Hello, how are you tonight? Cool, thank you so much. Thanks, Stu, for, uh, for introducing me. Like you said, my name is Dan. <laughs> hey. I'm on staff with crew. Uh, that means that it's, uh, my full-time job is to talk to y'all about life and spirituality. Um, not often do I get to talk to all of you at one time, um, but several times a semester. Um, normally, you'll kind of catch me in SSC or on the disc golf course, and we'll be talking about life and important stuff like that. Um, my wife's name is Emily. She's not on staff, and guess what? She's going to be coming to PCB with us this year. Yes, she signed up. For real, she's coming. I'll prove it to y'all. She's real. No, she's not. Um, I, I. The last time I went to PCB was 2015. It was my first year on staff with Crew. Um, we have a long history with PCB and I have some weird stories um, and I'm almost hesitant to share this one because it's going to show you how weird I was like as a student uh, but one year so the one one tradition at PCB is to like always have not honestly not always but it's a tradition that you um, usually try to set up creative dates and these are not like romantic dates these are like group of women and a group of guys kind of doing a social activity together we call it a creative date. Well my friend group was so weird that for their creative date, um, they found a dead seagull on the beach. And uh, the creative date was bird funeral themed. Um, <laughs> the office was still on TV at the time. It was very popular, and we loved it. And uh, it was weird. <laughs> and looking back on it now, I mean, it was like a lot of fun memories. But you too will have fun memories if you come to PCB with us. Don't, stay away from the dead animals, okay. But um, this week has been pretty difficult. Uh, another difficult week. So it sometimes it just feels like it never lets up. Um, I want you to know that it is a, it is a privilege um, to be here with you, to be gathering. I'm trying not to take it for granted that we do get to sort of gather together regularly and do life together and talk about important things together. Um, but so I, I want you to know that I am thankful for this time and um, just do your best to lean in. Uh, if your heart's in a different place or your mind is wandering, just you know, there's, there's Grace for that. Um, she's right there. <laughs> um, speaking of Grace, uh, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of James. Um, Grace last week spoke on the end of James chapter 1, and she, she told us about not just being a hearer of God's word, but being a doer as well. Obviously, we all know that there's a difference between knowing what's right and actually like, doing what is right, And there's an interesting sort of self-deception that Christians in particular can be prone to. Christians can be prone to saying, well, I believe X, Y, and Z, but our actions will show something different. And the book of James is all about Christian maturity. That is Christian maturity closing that gap between what I say I believe and what my actions prove that I believe. It's his main focus closing that gap of Christian maturity. For instance, in chapter 1, he said, you say that you have God's word in your heart, but that anger that's coming out of you, that's not from God. The gap is widened. Or you say you're religious, but you don't control your tongue. So what What do, what do I believe? The gap is widening. So today's passage, James is going to put his finger on another issue of Christian maturity. And it's in, in particular, it's it. It's immaturity that plays itself out in the context of our relationships and how we act towards one another. So we're going to begin chapter 2. It's James chapter 2, it's verses 1 to 13. If you'll uh, turn in your Bibles to that. If you don't have a Bible, look at the person next to you, please. Would you do that Um, so that we can all be reading it together? James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll read the passage. Father, I pray that you would zoom our hearts into this passage. Would you calm our nerves and our anxious hearts? Help us to see the truth that you have for us. I pray that the gap between what we say we believe and what we do would be narrowed tonight. It's in your name, we pray this. Amen. Let's read the passage. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. I'm going to be reading from the CSB. So if it's a little different than what you're reading, that's probably why. Um, But if you have a phone Bible, you can use the CSB version if you care to. The heading is The Sin of Favoritism. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor at my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do commit adultery, but you murder, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is our passage today. Um, Did anyone here grow up in, like, a Baptist church? We're talking, like, wow, like, actually a lot of you. We are in the South, right? And so, like, you know, the Baptist churches kind of, like, flow like milk and honey down here. I grew up in a Baptist church, and I swear to you, I heard this same story three, maybe four times growing up. Baptist pastors love to tell this story. And the story goes a little something like this. Um, Imagine there's a good old-fashioned Bible preaching, gospel-believing Baptist church, and their longtime faithful pastor, recently retired. They're on the lookout for a new pastor, and they're doing their interviews, and as these things go, a guest pastor is going to come in, and he's going to preach this Sunday. Everybody is on their best behavior. Everybody's in their nicest suit, their nicest dresses. They dust off the chandeliers. They polish the pews And on Sunday, the pastor, they're ready for the pastor. Everybody is so excited. A few minutes before the service starts, a homeless man walks into the church. And he slowly walks down the center of the aisle. This man is not dressed in his Sunday best. Looks like he hasn't bathed in weeks. He smells like he hasn't bathed in weeks. All eyes are on him as he walks down the center, takes takes a seat right here in the front of the church. You could cut the tension with a knife. A couple of tense seconds go by, and the head usher finally summons the courage to do what everybody hopes he would do. He walks up to the homeless man, he taps him on the shoulder, and he says, sir, wouldn't you be more comfortable in the back? Would you come with me, please? The homeless man, terribly, terribly embarrassed. He doesn't protest. He picks up his things. He follows the usher, and he takes a seat in the back of the, of the church. The service is getting ready to start. Everyone's like, okay, crisis averted. Let's just get on with this. The head usher comes up to the pulpit and he says, brothers and sisters, we have a guest preacher coming in today. We're really excited to have him. Would you come on up to the front, sir? And wouldn't you know it, the homeless man stands up, takes off his jacket, dusts himself off, and he walks up to the pulpit and says, good morning, I am... The guest preacher this morning. Everybody was terrified, embarrassed. So there's some truth here. Pastors love to tell this story because it addresses a real issue in our hearts. So raise your hand if you've ever heard that story before. Yeah, right, all the people who said they went up, grew up in Baptist churches, y'all know what I'm saying, except Stu, you're Presbyterian, dude. Okay, pastors love this story because it addresses a real issue And that is the issue that James is bringing up here in chapter 2. It's the sin of partiality. Some of your translations might say partiality. Some of the older translations might say respect of persons. My translation says favoritism. There was a time in Christian history in America when Christians believed the very best thing we could bring to God, our best sacrifice for God, was the way we dressed, the songs we sang, the way we spoke. Oftentimes, Um, we exported this idea to other countries as well. Um, But the problem with this line of thinking is that people who didn't fit this particular model of dress or speaking or acting, they were in turn excluded, or they were made to feel unchristian because he didn't fit these external markers. And of course, the biggest problem with all this is that a person, a fallible person, has to be the one to say what is a Christian dress or a Christian song or a Christian way of speaking. And then, and before you know it, we get into a situation as James describes here where a rich man, a a well-dressed rich man comes in and is given honor and esteem over a poor man who doesn't fit the mold. James's command here is clear and concise. He says, brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism. Um, This line of thinking, this like, Value of dress and speak and, and singing the right songs—it's kind of fallen out of favor in our modern church contexts. My suspicion is that um, some of you you don't necessarily relate to the story about the homeless man and the pastor in the same way that people back in the day did, because um, we have we've we sort of identified this as snotty and prideful. And we don't we don't necessarily hold that. Some of you may actually be feeling kind of kind of proud about how progressive you know the church you grew up in and forward thinking you are um, since that's the case oftentimes we are then tempted to say well this is this is like a safe passage for me i I'm not really I, this this one doesn't really apply to me I trust that somebody here needs to hear it but you know not not me because I would never act that way towards a homeless man or I, I would never expect someone to dress a certain way when they go to church but what James intends to show us here in this passage is that favoritism, partiality, is not a rich, poor issue. It's not just about our outward actions. But the sin of favoritism starts in our hearts and first and foremost resides in our hearts. It's an issue of the heart. So let, let's, let's take a look here. What, what's the key truth of this passage? Verse 4. Haven't you made distinctions among yourself? Haven't you, haven't you become judges with evil thoughts? The meaning of the word favoritism that James uses here might might help us to shed some light on this. Um, literally, the word favoritism that's used by James it means receive the face. And it's kind of a Jewish idiom. It's like he, he's saying, like, listen, brothers and sisters, don't receive the face. And uh, and in their context, they would have understood what that means. We translate it to mean favoritism, but it's not just the way they look. It's to discern from their outward appearance the kind of rank that that person is going to have with us, All right? Like, I kind of rank them in my mind based on what I, what I see, you know, externally from them. When we allow this kind of favoritism into our hearts, what we're allowing is we're allowing the world to determine what kind of worth this person is going to have with me. What the world says is, is valuable is what I will say is valuable about them. And James says it shouldn't be this way. Not among, God's, not among Christians, not among God's people, not among people who claim faith in Jesus. It shouldn't be this way. What motivates favoritism in our hearts? What would spring this up and, and cause us to, to act in this way? On the example that James gives us, um, perhaps we are fearful of being rejected by the powerful. We're fearful of of the world being rejected by the world. Perhaps we want to receive favor from the powerful, from what they can give us. Think about the power holders. Who are the power holders in our culture today? Who are the power holders on campus? the ones that really have the ability to make your life either easy or or maybe miserable, what would it take for you to ingratiate yourself to them, to sort of elevate them in your minds? Would you throw somebody else under the bus in order to do it? You might not think so. I'm sure nobody here would say, yeah, I'm prepared to do that. Uh, But what about when the pressure's turned on? What about when the target's on your back? Would you, would you uh, elevate something which you otherwise wouldn't? There's going to be times in your life, I promise you, there will be times in your life when you identify that somebody is a strategic or valuable, they have, the, they have the option or they have the ability to be some benefit to you. How are you going to respond to that in your heart when you've rightly identified that this person, if I'm on their right side, I could I could really get I could really make something of myself. What are you gonna What resources are you gonna give them from your heart? Are you gonna Are, are they gonna take your time, your affection, your attention? Are they gonna take your affection away from others in order to get the benefit from them? In our lives, there are there are people who are easy to love. I think about it this way: there are people in your life that are really easy to love. And there are people that are not so easy to love. I'm sure we're all thinking of somebody. The easy people have a lot to offer you. Friendship, if similar interests to you. You're not going to have to work real hard to be in a relationship with them. Things, things come pretty easy with these people. And then there's the hard people. There's, there's people in our life that really require some grace from us. Whew, we're praying without ceasing. I, I've had these people in my life patience, intentionality. They're not so easy to talk to. They're uh, maybe not so naturally going to be your friends. They, do, they don't check the boxes in your heart of the things you want from people. There's a simple fact in life that there are people who maybe have nothing to offer you. What are you going to do with that information? What do you do with that? I, I can tell you that the world doesn't have any problem taking those people and just casting them aside, right, and saying, best of luck, you know, I hope you find something, hope hope you find something in your life, but it's really not my responsibility to be friends with every difficult person, right? Isn't that what the world says? Like, I can't be expected to associate with people that I find revolting, or that are difficult to be in a relationship with. Um, But what does God do with those people? What's God's attitude towards the people that are difficult to love? Well, he draws near to them. In verse 5, James says, listen, listen! didn't didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he's promised to those who love him? Didn't he choose the poor? Tell me what you think. Between someone who feels like they have it all figured out in life and someone who knows that they're a total screw-up, Which one of those two people do you think is closer to the kingdom of God? Someone who thinks they have it all figured out, pretty sure that they don't need any help, and someone who is totally sure that they're a loser, right? Like, which one of those two people is closer to the kingdom of God? Jesus frequently received this sort of objection from the religious elites, from the power holders in society. They would often accuse him. They said, why do you you eat with these sinners, these, these tax collectors. Luke chapter 5, they asked him, why do you eat with these people? And he said, it's not those that are healthy that need a doctor, it's those who are sick. And I, I haven't come for the righteous, the so-called righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. For Jesus, it was the people on the outskirts of society. It was the people that were least likely to fit in with the status quo, that were most at ease around him, the people that, most, that, that were most attracted to the person of Jesus. Jesus' heart was magnetized towards the outsiders of the world. If, he, if his heart was a compass, it pointed towards the hard-to-love people, or the people who didn't check the boxes for what society wanted. James tells his readers, he says, Look around you, right? The powerful are they not doing you any favors, right? Aren't the, isn't it the rich? Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Isn't it the poor that God has chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he he speaking to Christians he encourages them. He says, hey, brothers, consider your calling. Remember, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And he did it so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So when we as Christians, when we choose power over the poor in spirit, when we, when we choose to throw ourselves onto the people that can benefit us or the people that are easy to love, and we just kind of toss aside the people that maybe would stretch us or, or, or make us feel awkward maybe, what, what are we really setting ourselves up against? Is it not God that we're setting ourselves against? Is it not his, his royal law to love your neighbor as yourself that we are contradicting when we make distinctions amongst ourselves. It's not only that, it's not, it's not just that we're setting ourselves against God and the people that he loves, but we're contradicting ourselves and what we claim to experience as Christians. As is often the case, Jesus has a startlingly clear depiction of this sin in our hearts. Um, the story you may be familiar with, it's in Matthew chapter 18. You can go back and, and read it on your own. Um, but essentially, Jesus tells the story of a servant who has this extravagant debt, a debt that he could never hope to pay. Excuse me. Um, it's 10,000 days wages, right? It's something which he could never possibly ever pay. And, and he goes to the master and he says, Please give me more time. I can pay this. Obviously not true. And the master looks at him and he has pity on him and he forgives, his set. He, he forgives his debt. Well, this servant has a couple people working for him back at home and he's got one guy that owes him a few bucks. And, and he says, hey, can you pay up? And the servant says, please, I, I can get it to you. Just give me a little bit more time. And the servant says, nah uh Throws him into prison until he can pay his debt. Well, the master that forgave the big debt hears about this and says, listen, I don't, think you, I don't think you really got what was going on here. Right? And he says, since you have not been merciful, you will not be shown mercy. And Jesus says, so it is with our Heavenly Father. That if you don't forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. When we understand the mercy that has been shown to us, when we understand what has been forgiven of us, when we understand Jesus' heart towards us, mercy will grip us. It will naturally come pouring out of us. And so that's why James can, right here with total confidence, and he can say, judgment without mercy, um, judgment is without mercy to the one who has not been shown mercy. What do your... Let's, let's, let's turn the magnifying glass in. What do your words and actions reveal about your heart? The truth that's in your heart. When I think about my heart and I think about every harsh word that comes out of me when I'm angry, when I think about maybe when I turn a blind eye to a need that's right in front of me, I've got this tendency where I'll just like look at a need and I'll think, oh, someone should really do something about that and then just kind of go off on my way, right? When I think about avoiding, trying to avoid difficult people rather than leaning in and, and, and expressing mercy to them, what does it really reveal about what I think in my heart? Doesn't it kind of show that I think I wasn't really all that hard to forgive for God? I think I didn't really even need all that much mercy, right? If, if, if mercy is not flowing out of me, what is it, what does it What does it say about what I think about God? If we're honest, even our attempts at mercy are are usually tainted by sin, aren't they? What is God's solution to this? What's God's solution to an unmerciful heart? What should we do when we are judged by the law of freedom, as James puts it, and we're found to be lacking? we, We don't meet the royal law that God has set out. Is the solution dig down deeper, try harder, sweat it out, clench your teeth and make something happen? Friends, we don't have it inside of us to fix what's broken. The answer is not deeper inside of you. Jesus said that he didn't come for those who feel that they are healthy. He came for those who know that they're sick and need a doctor. So if, if you look inside your heart, and, and you're startled by the lack of mercy that you see, or a tendency towards distinction, favoritism, my encouragement to you is to flee to Jesus, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a word of comfort here for us. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's one of the great ironies of the Christian life. Even in our conviction of sin, even when we are so sure of our sinfulness. It's a greater opportunity to find our, our, our worth in Jesus. It's, a, it's an opportunity to make Jesus greater in our life. There's no safer place for a sinner than with Jesus. So taste and see the mercy of Jesus. Lean into that. He's offering us mercy. Mercy live in his mercy, and in the same way, we can go and we can love others. Um, If you're you're feeling convicted about this tonight, I encourage you to share it with somebody. Talk with your small group about it. If you're not in a small group, talk to someone who is and ask to get in. And uh, don't leave here tonight without processing this with someone. Let's, Let's be a community that is known for the mercy and the grace that we show one another and the love that compels us and breaks down like worldly distinctions. And the and the common ground that we find in Christ.